this series of talks and discussions on the Four Noble Truths, the central model in the Buddhist teachings. And this comes out of um, a book that we've been following for almost, a, I guess, a whole year now, Jack Kornfield's more recent book, The Wise Heart. So on chapter 16, he looks at the Four Noble Truths. And one thing we have to understand about this particular teaching, as central as it is to how the Buddha talked about human life, he didn't usually begin with it. Because it's quite provocative, the essence of this teaching on the Four Noble Truths is this understanding that attachment is the heart of suffering, of stress. And it's in the abandoning, the dropping or letting go of of this attachment that a human being finds real happiness. And outside of that, there isn't any meaningful happiness, the Buddha might argue, because it's all limited. Whatever happiness we bump into in life, having a nice relationship or a pleasant day or a good job, these are, you know, the real happiness. It's a real happiness, but it's a limited happiness. It's, it's uh, insecure if we've all bumped up against this, of course. But the happiness, the freedom of not grasping, not attaching, that's a different, sort of on a different level. So the Buddha describes the path, the spiritual life, in terms of a mundane and a super mundane. Or you could say an ordinary, self-centered approach, like I'm a guy who's trying to be happy. On that level, that's an appropriate, I mean, it's unavoidable to approach life, spiritual life, from that perspective. But if we do that really well, a shift happens. And this particular teaching on the Four Noble Truths is talking about this shift from a limited perspective on happiness to a deeper, more universal perspective on happiness, what happiness is, where it's to be found. So generally when the Buddha met somebody, if they hadn't been doing a lot of spiritual practice, he'd size them up and he'd get a sense, it would be a pretty typical understanding, oh, this person just wants to be happy. So I'll, I'll teach them what I know about just being happy in this mundane sense. And so he would teach about, well, if you really want to be happy, if you really want good things to arise in your life, then cultivate generosity. Or if you want really bad things to arise in your life, cultivate stinginess and greediness and competition. Right? We know this is true, actually. You know, the times when we're really tight and needy and stingy, do you notice that things don't work very well in your life? And the times when we're really feeling generous, acting on that generosity, patient, generous with our time, it's like it's a beautiful life. And it sets in motion really beautiful things in our life, too. So this isn't about you know the Buddha trying to trick us into being good people or something like that. It's a science of life, and you could just check it out for yourself. You know, decide for a week to be really stingy and greedy, and see what comes of it. 
see if you actually end up being happier. And then spend a week, whenever there's an opportunity to be generous, then to be generous. I mean, not that you have to give away everything, but to respond to any reasonable request that comes your way, in some way, in some positive way. Give something away. Offer something up. Do what is appropriate. And just see how that feels. And the other thing he would teach, the sort of beginning teachings is, you want to be happy? Well, cultivate non-harming. Actively resolve not to harm living beings, not to kill living beings, not to take what isn't given. And, you know, the thing about this resolve or this commitment to non-harming is we start to feel really good about ourselves when we have this commitment. Just like if we've compromised that commitment over and over again, where we do steal or take things that aren't really ours, or we do use harsh words to put someone down, we don't, we don't feel good about ourselves. It hurts. And we always are afraid that someone's going to get revenge from our actions our negative actions. And just the opposite arises if we get really good at this commitment not to harm. We just start feeling good, like we can trust ourselves that even if the going gets tough, we're not going to be doing things that set emotion suffering. We're not going to be acting like a jerk or acting like a fearful person, in which case the world begins to respond to us when we're mean. You know, just like the world responds to us when we're kind, but in different ways. So this is the other way. The Buddha taught people, if you want to be happy, cultivate generosity, cultivate your ethical conduct, purify your ethical conduct. And this will not only immediately make you feel better, but it will set in motion causes and conditions that will lead to your long-term happiness. And in the Buddhist cosmology, that's not only in this lifetime, but in many lifetimes to follow. You're setting emotion causes and conditions that will really serve you well as an individual. So this is a very this is what we call mundane happiness. It's not about cheating and manipulating our way into wealth or into the relationship we want, you know, like somehow manipulating the situation so this person falls in love with us so we get what we want. That, the Buddha says, doesn't really lead to happiness. If you really want to be happy, cultivate generosity, cultivate non-harming, and you will be really happy. So that's what he would teach first. Nothing about emptiness. And then once people got that and cultivated that kind of happiness, cultivated the generosity and non-harming, and they started to get the results. Their life started to work better, had more harmony. Then he would just, in a skillful way, help them notice the limitations of even that really wholesome happiness. Like even when things are going well and people do like us and respect us because we've been generous and kind and committed to not harming, that that happiness is also fragile and... Uh, it's limited. See, that's important because otherwise we might seek some uh, sort of a deeper happiness 
but not having touched ordinary happiness. And then, but once we really understand the happiness that can be found in this, you know, human life, the ordinary happiness that can be found, like when your your family is just humming along and everybody likes each other and, and supports each other and you've got a good livelihood where you're not harming anybody as you earn your money and you get paid enough to take care of your basic needs and your family's needs you know and you live in an orderly community where people follow the rules and don't harm each other and don't take things that aren't theirs and people are kind and patient and take turns share you know that when we have that kind of happiness then when we understand that the limitations of that happiness that turning toward the spiritual life goes very deep it's really resonant we're not like suspicious that we're maybe pursuing you know just a better job or a better relationship because we have a feeling well I already have a pretty good relationship I already have a pretty good job I already live in a pretty nice place so for the winners <laughs> but we kind of we, we have it good enough that even if we can imagine a place with a better climate or a job that has better benefits or something like that we'd see that it's not like it's not a game changer the sort of human predicament remains the same that's what we need we need it to be good enough so we understand that even those who might theoretically have it better than us that they're pretty much in the same boat as we are even though their body's a little nicer than ours or their health is a little better than mine or their job or their money situation their family situation and this is where the Buddha would start teaching about the joy of renunciation the joy of letting go just to open somebody's mind that there's this is the paradigm shift where we go from um, the mundane spiritual path getting really wholesome things right being kind being generous creating really beautiful community around us to the super mundane path where this is the path the spirit part of spiritual life that's about non-attachment or letting go where we see that as good as this is it's still limited it's still fragile it still takes work you know I, I have to pay attention to set in motion good causes so I get good results I have to be good I'm dependent on being good even that is stressful it's not stressful being good it's the having the having to be good that's stressful okay because I'm not suggesting that the super mundane path you don't have to be good but you're not attached to being good being good is just what you do now it's your habit but being dependent on anything is stressful and so the Buddha would open people's minds just to his teachings about the joy about the real freedom of non-attachment and this is really where the Four Noble Truths come in so I'll review it briefly there are four noble truths this is a set of practices or insights each of these four 
there were three insights. So a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the first noble truth, which are the three insights. In life, there is stress. There is vulnerability. There is insecurity. That's an insight. A lot of us are so busy, so distracted, so much in denial that when we finally, honestly, authentically recognize, oh my God, life is infused with vulnerability, uncertainty, stress, anxiety. That's an insight to, to recognize that honestly, that that's just, that's not like a mistake. It's inherent in life, this stress, this anxiety, this uncertainty, this insecurity. No matter how good the situation is, it's there. It may be quite subtle in some moments when things are really smooth in our lives, but it's always there. And then the second insight in the First Noble Truth is the insight, this is relevant. The fact that there is stress here in life, vulnerability, uncertainty in life, this is not an obscure fact. This is deeply relevant to how I should be, how I should live, the kind of attitude I should have about life, the way I should be relating to my life. That's an insight. It's like we realize, oh, this isn't something to deny or to distract myself from. This is like relevant. As I said the, that I gave the talk, this is like a teacher we recognize, we have an insight. This is my teacher whether it's subtle or obvious stress, subtle or obvious anxiety, we see it as something to turn to, to open to. And that's the third insight in the first noble truth. There is dukkha or stress. It should be understood. And the third insight, it has been understood. So that moment when we have so fully opened to the uncertainty, the insecurity, the vulnerability, the stress or anxiety in the moment, when we're so open to it that there's nothing left to open to, then there's an insight. Okay, I've opened. I'm completely aware, awake to this experience of uncertainty that's here right now. It's like this. So it's no denial, no suppression, no like negotiation, but just a, a, a raw interest an interest that comes from that second insight, which is, it's relevant. So now we're opening, not in order to get rid of it, but to understand it, because we realize it's relevant. It's as if we understand there's information, basic information here, that can transform my life, but I need to open to it fully. Which shifts us into the second level truth, which we talked about last week, which is, when we've had those first three insights, then the fourth insight, the first and the second noble truth, which is the noble truth, there is a cause, well, that's the insight. Oh my God, there's a cause. And that's this insight that the stress I'm feeling, the uncertainty, the discomfort, the heaviness in my heart, the ouch in my life, is being caused right here and now. It's not what we normally think is that I'm blaming the Minnesota weather, you know, that it's cold outside. That's why I'm tight. But we realize it isn't the weather that's making us tight. It's something that's happening right here. I don't like this weather. That's happening right here. That's actually 
the cause of the ouch. I don't like Minnesota weather. It isn't the 15 degrees or the 8 degrees that makes the mind or heart tight or heavy. It's the not liking of it. We're attached to it being another way. We're grasping for spring or for you know, global warming. <laughs> Hopefully not. But we're grasping for things to be other than they are. So that's an insight where we realize that the cause is here. And then the second insight and the second noble truth is this should be abandoned. What we realize, you know, that cause that we see, that we awaken to, the attachment, the grasping, that's a nice word, clinging or grasping. We notice in this moment the heart is grasping, wanting things to be other than they are. Have you ever had a moment where you didn't want things to be other than they are? That's a moment of awakening. That's a moment of freedom. We'll get to that in a minute. That's the third noble truth. But what we do know a lot of are when we do want things to be other than they are. And even when things are quite great, we want it to be other than they are. We want this to last forever. So already in that moment, that's already really smooth and good, we want it to be other than they are. Because on some level, maybe unconsciously, we know it's going to change. So unconsciously or not, we're wanting it to be other than it is. We want this not to change, even though we know it is going to change. So we're even grasping when moments are really good for us, wanting it not to change. So we have the, the awakening, oh my God, there's a cause, it's here, in the mind and heart. It's not out there in the world. That there's the mind, a mental activity, is responsible for the ouch, for the heaviness, for the dukkha, the stress. And then the third insight is, the second one is, it should be abandoned, and the third is, it has been abandoned. So now the meditation object, whether we're in daily life or formally sitting meditation, it's the same thing. We've had the insight, there is dukkha, it's relevant, it has been understood, and now we're in the second noble truth, and the, the meditation object is, there's a cause, this cause should be abandoned, this cause has been abandoned. And that the essence of the teaching last week was, this abandoning, this letting go of attachment, of grasping, is something that happens naturally when the cause is seen clearly. So we're seeing the cause and we're having an insight that it should be abandoned, it should be let go of. That's the cause for letting go. Wanting to let go of attachment or grasping doesn't make it happen because that's more attachment. <laughs> what makes letting go happen is seeing that it's there and that it's unnecessary, that it should be let go of. So seeing that it should be let go of is not trying to let go. This is a really important point because we misunderstand attachment. We think we've got to do something about it. But there's only one thing we have to do about attachment. We have to understand that it's unnecessary or that it needs to, to be abandoned. That's it. We have to rest with that insight. We have to trust that insight. This is unnecessary. This needs to be abandoned. We have to be patient there. Anything more 
we're right back in, oh, this is dukkha. Like wanting the attachment to go away, we're right back to the first noble truth where we have to understand, oh, this is suffering. Here I am, here I am again, suffering. This should be, this is relevant. Okay, pay attention. Okay, I'm open to this wanting the attachment to go away kind of suffering. Oh, there's a cause. I'm attached to the attachment going away. So it doesn't matter how many you know, times we sort of tied ourselves into knots, it will always be the same, which is realizing grasping is the cause, grasping is unnecessary, it should be abandoned, patiently there in that insight until we have the insight it has been let go of. Letting go has happened. The mind has abandoned or the activity of grasping has ceased in the mind. There is no more grasping. There is no more struggling with things as they are. No more trying to make things other than they are. And then there is a realization. Oh my God, there is a cessation of suffering. That's the first insight in the third noble truth. It's that initial insight or awakening when we see the mind or heart without any grasping. Everybody in this room, I'm assuming, has had many moments of non-grasping. Now whether you did the second and third inside of this is relevant because it's not only there is cessation, but it's the insight this should be realized. Meaning this needs to be a meditation object we need to be mindful of the experience of cessation. It's not something to dismiss or to make up some reason why we're feeling so good. We need to realize directly what's happening. We have to realize the heart or mind, so it's like we're taking it up as a meditation object, aware, awake to the mind, the heart, and realizing that this cessation, what cessation is, well there's no greed, there's no aversion, there's no reactivity, there's no grasping of any kind. Ah. And then there's the realization or the next insight, the third insight, that cessation has been realized. So there is cessation, this should be realized, you could say integrated or understood, and then the third, it has been realized. Everything there is to understand about the experience of cessation has been understood. It's been thoroughly integrated, realized. This is the mind without greed and aversion, without reactivity, without grasping. Then the fourth noble truth, and we'll talk about this next week, which is there's a path that's an insight. It's like a, an awakening because we've so thoroughly, previously we've so thoroughly realized a mind without grasping, we get, oh, we get something about how to live. Oh, I get it now. I live a life that doesn't have grasping. Okay? That means in my relationships, no grasping. That's called ethical conduct, you know? <laughs> when I work with my mind, no grasping. You know, in terms of view, no views that have anything to do with grasping. That's the Eightfold Path. But basically, it's this continued integration where we now sort of draw some conclusions about how to live, how to relate, based on our insight of a mind without grasping, this mind without grasping. It like transforms our meaning 
that our life has, like what to do with life. We see that life isn't about acquiring things, it's about perfecting non-grasping. I mean, it's a total, totally different view. Whatever you think your view is about what leads to happiness, you know, it would look, for each of us, it would look different, what we think happiness looks like, but it would all involve some kind of attainment, right? But now it's not about attainment in a sense, it's about non-grasping, living a life that's all about non-grasping. So it's not about attainment, because what do we actually need not to grasp? There's only one thing we need to not grasp, which is that understanding. We need the understanding that it's possible, that's the third noble truth, that non-grasping is possible because I realized it. I was there, you know, I was awake, I was mindful in the moment when the mind had no greed, no aversion, no grasping. So I know it's possible. You know? And I know it feels right with a capital R. You know, like, this is the way. This is the happiness. This is the ease. This is the sense of wholeness that I've been looking for. And it really begins, you know, every one of those insights into non-grasping, the experience of the cessation. By the way, nirvana or nibbana, which is sort of the word in Buddhist practice, the sort of word the Buddha used as the fruit of good practice, means cessation. It literally means the cessation of greed, anger, and delusion in the mind. So that's, it's not heaven, like, you know, like the perfect place where we get everything we want. That's grasping. (laughs) Wanting things to be other than they are. Wanting to go to heaven is a subtle kind, or maybe not so subtle kind of grasping. It's not that different than wanting to have a really buff body, or a big car, or more power than your neighbor, or whatever else you might want. It's like there's a sense of self who wants something other than what is. And then we grasp for it. So this is the super mundane path the Buddha taught. Seeing the limitations of craving, of grasping, whether we're grasping for just an ordinary sense experience, like to go home and to be in our warm bed, or we're grasping to become somebody, or we're grasping to get rid of, to be done with what we don't like. These are the three directions of grasping. We can grasp for a sense experience, we can grasp to become somebody, and we can grasp for things to be done, to be over with, the stuff we don't like, of course. If we get, if we become a really good student of that, then we go to the third noble truth as I explained and uh, as I mentioned this can be quite tricky because once we have some understanding like we've been doing good practice and we realize that suffering or stress or insecurity uncertainty it's relevant and we've been practicing opening to it being mindful of our little mild and big experiences of stress in life and we're beginning to have some insight where we know 
directly that attachment is always suffering. You don't get attachment without suffering, without stress. Grasping equals stress or suffering. So we have some insight. Well, the trick here, and someone sent an email today, I'll, I'll read a little bit from, or yesterday maybe, about this. Um, because it's so easy to get attached to overcoming attachment. And this is the problem. We get here a lot. You know, re- human beings that are completely overwhelmed by life, in poverty, in a war zone. It's not that unusual for a human being to have enough insight to realize that attachment doesn't work, grasping doesn't work. Because we bump up, you know, there are moments when we feel relatively content and it just feels so right when we're not wanting things to be other than they are. Like those first few days or months or years when you're in a relationship and it feels really right. And there's some contentment because it feels so right. And then we start to notice when we start grasping, like, oh, but I don't like this about him or her. You know, and we realize how much suffering that brings into the relationship. Same thing with our body. You know, as we get older and things begin to sag or hair begins to turn color or things like that. You know, and then we see how so most of us have this insight that in some vague way at least that grasping, wanting things to be other than they are, is somehow related to suffering. Makes life hard to bear, right? Most people feel like that's an authentic insight you have. But because we haven't had good instruction and haven't paid close enough attention, we approach this problem that we're beginning to understand, the problem that we see grasping is at the heart of the problem, we approach it with grasping. We this will see this among Buddhist practitioners all the time. All of us. I put myself here too. In some way, our practice is contaminated with grasping. We're, we undertake our meditation practice or other aspects of our practice, studying, trying to commit to non-harming, to being a more generous human being, kinder person. These various goals we have are fueled by grasping. We see ourselves as a limited, imperfect human being. We imagine Mark as a non-grasping human being. We see it's like a shiny Mark out there in our imagination. And we grasp. We want to get there. And we want to get rid of this limited Mark who grasps. But it doesn't occur to us that we're grasping, wanting to be perfect, wanting to be free of grasping. So this is the real tricky point. This is what this person said in this email. My question isn't so much of uh, so much of what the third noble truth means, but how to incorporate it into a balanced worldview. More specifically, how to relate to attachment with an understanding that it causes so much unnecessary suffering. And that's the key. How do we relate to attachment? Given that it causes so much suffering, it seems to make sense that we'd want to grasp to get beyond it, to put it down, to get rid of it. 
And it really re- revolves around this insight that although there is suffering, no sufferer can be found. This is a line from Buddhaghosa's famous text. He wrote it, I don't know, maybe like six or eight hundred years after the time of the Buddha. And uh, it's a kind of a well-known Buddhist meditation manual for the last couple thousands of years or 1800 years or whatever it's been since he wrote it. And so he has this line, uh, doing is, but no doer can be found. Suffering is, but no sufferer can be found. And it really goes to this point this person is asking about. He goes on or she goes on, um, I feel like the understanding that grasping leads to pain should be sufficient in sparking the letting go, surrendering, renunciation process. But that makes so much sense. And it's actually true that it is understanding the cause, understanding that there is a cause and its attachment, that that should be sufficient. The person continues, however, this often leads to a false surrender, more of a pushing, short-term, sacrificial surge to super-exceed super or bypass confusion, suffering. But this ends in some ego, uh, egoic rebuttal and cyclical behavior. What I have come to accept is that there is no silver bullet. This stuff takes time. And remaining open to experiences and being willing to come back to the present moment is what is to be done. There's a lot of wisdom here. Because to learn that, that patience at that point where we see there's a cause and we see that the cause should be let go of. So we have enough wisdom, enough insight to know that there's suffering and there's a cause and the cause is right here. That is such a setup to be reactive. But reactive reactivity doesn't work there. We have to see that there's a cause, which is grasping, and that it should be abandoned without turning it into a personal problem. I have to abandon the grasping. Because when the I gets involved, there's grasping. Just like we can say if there's attachment, there's suffering, we can also say if there's a set sense of self, there will be attachment and there will be suffering. You can't really have attachment without an established sense of self in the mind. So the opposite of having an established sense of self and grasping is to take the position of knowing. What are we knowing? We're knowing there is attachment. It should be abandoned. That's it. Can we be patient in that place? There is attachment. It should be abandoned. This is the real heart of practice. This is the hard part of practice. And the way it manifests is just like are we willing to be awake, fully awake? That means fully sensitive in all of the messiness of our life. I mean, one of the reasons we sit still for 30 minutes, 45 minutes, 60 minutes in our formal practice every day, or as many days as you can do it, is that it doesn't feel good to sit still. We want to move the body. We want to get up and do this. We want to make this adjustment, adjustment or scratch that itch or you know, look and see who's in the room with us or what the cat's doing. All of that to be 
willing to see all of that movement is like a metaphor for what we have to do all life long, which is not necessarily be still, physically still, but we have to be willing to feel the force of attachment without reacting. So we keep seeing it, seeing it as the cause for suffering, seeing that it needs to be abandoned, and just be patient there. Can we be patient in messiness? Can we be patient when we're around our friends who are acting out, who are being really unskillful, you know, complaining, gossiping, uh, self-hatred? Can we be around them without needing to fix them because we're averse to their suffering? I'm not saying we shouldn't try to help. I'm saying that wanting to get rid of their suffering because it makes us hurt doesn't help. That's called grasping. But if we're just patient, right there in the messiness of our mind, our body, or the messiness of somebody else's mind and body, or the whole world's messiness, if we can be really clear in the middle of the messiness, then something will happen. We'll notice the letting go of grasping or the letting go of craving, or the letting go of aversion. We'll just see it, and we'll realize a moment of cessation. There, right in the middle of the messiness of life, right in the middle of this life situation, no grasping. That's the real heart of the Third Noble Truth. Being patient enough, this is not like a, a tight, kind of patience. Real patience, you know, in a spiritual sense, patience involves a tremendous sensitivity or a tremendous intimacy. We're really feeling what it's like to be in the mess. We're really aware of grasping and that it should be abandoned. Because that's the cause for the letting go, is being sensitive to how much it hurts. We're watching the mind, judging our friend, hating our friend, hating this particular aspect of our friend or this particular aspect of my mind as our mind acts out, you know, like whatever your particular pattern is, neurotic eating, you know, dependence on certain relationships, needing people to like you in particular ways, needing to look or present yourself in particular ways. I mean, we all have various things we're attached to, whatever it might be. Being right about life, being right about politics or something, you know, your ideas are the right ones. So we all have our attachments. And if we can go from the point of seeing that they hurt, like that I'm, they're stressed, oh, it's stressed because I'm attached, this attachment should be abandoned. So we're there, aware, but not taking ownership we're just willing to understand without owning it. It's such a, a, a sort of transformation of view. Because normally when we see something up close and personal, we the habit is to think, good, I finally understand this. Now I can do something about it. Because on a mundane level, this really helps. In the same way I described earlier in the evening, you know, if we really get that being generous leads to happiness, 
in, in a sense, we grasp that and we incorporate it. We really set it in motion. We start being more generous. We start being more committed to non-harming, and it, we see it works. You know, good business people operate this way. Good parents, good lovers—they kind of see what works and they grasp it. Okay, I get it. I get how this works. But now we can. So that's why this is so hard, because we see how it works. Every instinct, every mundane instinct, is telling us, grasp this. You got it. You finally figured out the cause of your suffering. Now just go get rid of it. <laughs> and it's missing this point that has set in motion, according to the Buddha, endless cycles of suffering. These repetitive cycling to suffering. Because even though we know something, we don't know the whole picture. We don't, we don't know that wanting to get rid of suffering is the cause. Craving the end of suffering is not the way suffering ends. Suffering ends by understanding the cause thoroughly. And that's it. Just understanding. This is a path of understanding. It's not a path of doing. Or, you know, if you want to say, you could say it's a path of doing understanding. But that's it. It's the only thing we're allowed to do. Now, doing will still happen. The personality, the life, the body-mind, it's going to do things, so you're not against doing. That's also doing. Thinking you shouldn't do anything <laughs> is just as much a doing statement as thinking you should save the world. Right? So you don't get out of it by sort of doing the passivity thing or the detachment thing. That's not, that's just its own kind of suffering. It's just a different flip side of you know, I'm going to save the world, or I'm going to make myself perfect. Both are suffering. So we have to transform that deep instinct to do, transform it to uh, uh, a new instinct, a new habit to understand. This willingness to understand. So it, it's really understanding or appreciating the role of patience is essential. So I'll leave it here so that we can hear from folks here. A little bit more than 10 minutes. Any questions you have about the talk tonight or comments? Yeah, Julian. Uh, does the understanding lead to a intuitive awareness that, can, that guides our actions so we're not constantly having to reflect or fall into craving? Yeah, I think so. And that's the, that's the path that gets revealed. And that path, the, what we'll talk about next week is there is a path, there is a way. This comes directly out of that insight into non-grasping. There is a way. Life or grasping in life isn't inevitable. This way should be developed, this way has been developed. So every time we have an insight into non-grasping, we get a, a view of how to live. And if we're skillful, we develop that view. We kind of act on that view. Oh, this is how I should be in this relationship. This is how I should relate to food. This is how I should relate to my body. This is how I should relate to the world. And we act on it. And it becomes our character. You know, it kind of gets integrated. It becomes who we are. So I think that's what you're pointing to is that... Well, that trust becomes habituated. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. In fact, the whole process, every insight along the way becomes habituated. It, 
we're replacing our old habits that are based on not seeing things clearly with habits of mind based on seeing things clearly, seeing things more deeply. Other thoughts come to mind? Yeah. Quick question. I think it was in Kornfeld that I read this where it said that uh, pain was inevitable, but suffering was not. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between pain and suffering? Yeah, well, it depends on what level you want to talk about. On a mundane level, on kind of an ordinary level, there is inevitable pain in life. Your wife or partner dies before you do, that's going to be painful. There will be a very real experience of loss, even for an enlightened being. The Buddha mentioned that when Sariputta and Moggallana, his two chief disciples, died, they were older than he was, and they died before him. He said it was as if the sun and moon had been removed from the sky. So even it's an expression of real loss, a feeling like something big has happened, something big is being felt. So it isn't like human beings don't feel things. So that's pain, whether it's loss or being sick. You know, sometimes the Buddha couldn't complete a Dharma talk because his back ached as he got older. So he'd lie down and he'd ask, you know, one of his chief disciples to finish the talk for him. So, you know, he felt physical pain, got sick. So on a mundane level, there's pain. And we could say, like, pain is, but no one, no one suffering because of the pain can be found. So that's, that sort of points to the difference between pain and suffering. Suffering is when the mind, out of bad habit, constructs a sense of somebody who's having the pain and doesn't like it and wants to get rid of it. That's called suffering, when there's an identity related to loss or pain. When there's just pain or loss or one of the ordinary unavoidable insults in life without a constructed identity, then it's just pain. Now, we don't really know what that experience is. We shouldn't assume, I should say, we know what that experience is. What is the experience of banging your head hard when you don't construct a self? And this is really good to explore with the ordinary pains. Like, when you step out of the building tonight, it will be cold, right? And most of us are conditioned not to like that cold feeling. So it's a perfect opportunity to see, can, we, can the system, the mind-body system, be completely sensitive, not in denial of what that's like, but not constructing a self who doesn't like it? And you might see, because it, the mind is very nimble, you can go back and forth in an instant. You can be somebody who doesn't like it, and in the next moment there can be a, a, literally a realization of non-grasping. The experience without a person not liking it, or a person wanting it to be other than it is. You go back and forth. I remember once eating oatmeal at uh, IMS, this major uh, practice center out in Massachusetts. I was on a three-month retreat, and um, you know, I put my walnuts in it, and honey in it, and butter in it, so it was good. <laughs> and on retreats, these things turn out to be very important in pleasures. And I was just flipping back and forth, probably less than a second, with attachment and then non-attachment, like oatmeal with attachment, oatmeal without attachment. <laughs> back and forth. And it was so instructive to see that 
the mind really has this option. It's like so easy to be having a pleasant experience and a sense that it belongs to me and somebody is delighting in it and happy that is and afraid that it's not going to last forever. And, you know, that's so rich and poignant because that's what we're used to, that whole self-involvement. And then the very simple experience of pleasantness being known, crunchiness being known, sweetness being known. <laughs> Yeah. And please say your name, Gary. Yeah, Gary. To kind of dovetail that, we happen to be at Spirit Rock on Saturday. Okay. Kind of Jack Cornfield was delivering a Dharma talk, and one of the individuals talked up and spoke about healthy, you know, what are healthy desires or healthy attachments and so on. But can can the person be so non-attached and trying to not cause suffering and preserve what is wholesome that one can actually uh, try too hard for non-attachment and therefore cause suffering. Yeah, and I think that's what this person who wrote this email yesterday was pointing to in their own experience that just once, this is the thing about insight, once we have insight, the ego is still involved, the sense of self is still very much part of the mind's condition, it hasn't been teased out over years of of successful practice so it's still there and the ego is going to co-opt the insight it's a real insight you know that attachment isn't good so then instead of doing the practice we're imitating non-attachment and that's I think what you're pointing to and that doesn't work you know and it may look the same from the outside but it doesn't feel the same because there's a lot of tension and wanting to be the person who's not attached and wanting to live up to some idea, wanting to become the person who's not attached to things. Ultimately, it's detachment rather yeah. than non-grasping. Yeah, yeah. And so, some kind of cold. Says you want to be yeah, this promotion. No, I don't want it. That's attachment. Yeah. From your, um, I like being with you. No, that's attachment. That yeah. kind of thing. Exactly. And it's a form of asceticism. Like life is bad, and so I can't be involved in life. So some people who, who have that sort of spiritual sickness, like they're, they're really into attachment being bad, but it, from a self-centered point of view, then, you know, what's good for them is to go fall in love and have a family, you know, or just to, to get poured into, be forced into life, into responsibilities, because they're thinking that the path is about disconnecting. But that's not the path. It is not a path of disconnection. It's a path of intimacy and understanding. It's like you can't really understand without intimacy. So we need to be intimate with life, whatever that is for us. You know, if you're a parent, it means being intimate with that experience of being a parent. If you're in a partnership, it means being intimate with that. If you're an old person, it means being intimate with that experience. If you're young, it means being intimate with that. And kind of owning the circumstances of our lives and realizing non-attachment in being in our roles, you know, whatever they might be. Running from our roles is, of course, aversion. Wanting to become not attached is attachment, craving. So it's tricky. It's good that people keep bringing this up. Other thoughts? We've got a time for at least one more person. Yeah, what's your name? I'm having difficulty being with accepting 
things in my outer life and then also knowing when maybe a change is necessary. Say a little bit more. Um, okay, I guess I'm thinking mostly in my workplace. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when maybe it is time for me to move on and do something else. Or do I just need to, you know, really become intimate with like the frustrations that I'm Right, but being intimate with the frustrations, that will clarify. You, you'll get closer and closer and closer to things as they actually are in your job situation. Right? So you have as much information as is possible to make the choice to stay or leave. So instead of needing to figure out whether you should stay or leave, instead do the sort of basic research know everything you can know about your relationship to your job and how it is for you and see what happens see if you stay or leave do you know like just make sure you're not attached to not leaving and make sure you're not attached to leaving so then what would what could get in the way of making the right decision whatever that means you know what i mean so this is, this is part of this is part of this teaching on anatta, the not self. It's like the Buddha is not saying that there isn't a skillful life to be lived. He's saying that the way for this skillful life to be lived isn't by establishing a sense of self, and then the self, the sense of self, is trying to figure out what's skillful or not. That doesn't help. There's only one thing that helps us be skillful, which is paying close attention, mindful attention, this wise presence. And that means that means we're abandoning the need to do. But that doesn't mean we're abandoning doing. We're abandoning the attachment or the identification with the doer. But that actually frees up the doing whether the doing is this wholehearted I'm staying in this job or this wholehearted I'm leaving this job or this wholehearted I'm going to sit it out for a little longer until I get more clarity. Each of those three are very powerful you know, actions. And can we be content you know, with what our life is doing? You know, maybe, maybe your very wholehearted action right now is I'm really showing up and I'm really here in the middle and uh, not sure whether I should be here or not. Like, that's your life. And to be really intimate, but not dependent on it staying, not dependent on it changing. I mean, couldn't we be in a, a relationship our whole life? I mean, imagine this, you get married or you have a partner and your whole life, you're not sure whether this is the right person. But you could turn that into complete torture, you know, like, because you could make it so that every person you see, you wonder, I wonder if he or she's the right person for me. Or you could be completely uh, relaxed with not knowing, you know, like, like see that as a appropriate gesture or approach to life, like not knowing, but I'm in the relationship. And I'm going to be in this relationship until there's some clarity, you know, to not be in this relationship. But we don't expect uh, like a, a sort of an absolute meaning or belief because that's from the self point of view. It's only the self that wants certainty. 
Wisdom doesn't demand certainty because it understands there is no such thing as certainty. Things are just the way that they are until they're changed and then they're the way that they are now. So your job is just the way that it is. Can you trust understanding, like let that be your approach to the job. Understanding how it feels, what you see in your mind, what you see in your body. Get really close to any pain associated with the job. You don't need to think about um, should you leave or not. If you're really clear about what's happening, leaving or staying will happen. So report back. <laughs> we have to leave it here. Let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.